and welcome to another edition of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, you and I talk a lot about markets, but it's kind of weird, I guess, because like neither of us, well, I suppose you have, you invested a little bit when you were in college, right? Way back in the day, I did a little uh, bit of trading and I worked for a brief period for a portfolio management company, but no, I would say that between the two of us, we do not have a lot of collective experience actually in the market. Right. So have you ever wanted to have an in-depth discussion with someone who actually makes investment decisions on a daily basis? Yes. <laughs> this is all. I mean, to be honest, this is all I want to do every day. You know, we, there's so <laughs> many people who just talk and talk and pundits and strategists and people who tweet too much. And it's like, forget all the noise. Let's just talk to someone who, uh, you know, actually has to put money to work. I mean, that's what people really want to hear, right? Right. And of course, it's one thing for us to kind of sit back and say markets look frothy and this is right, overvalued. There's signs of irrational exuberance. Ugh. But if you're someone whose job is to actually put money to work, you have to find something to invest in, right? Exactly. Or I mean, or theoretically, you could sit out the market, but then you're going to be judged on that question, too. But you definitely can't get away with just saying boring stuff like the markets are looking frothy and all of the boring stuff people say all the time. But anyway, why, why are you? Uh, what are you getting at? Are we going to have such a conversation like that today? Are we going to have a good conversation? Yeah, we are actually. So today for our guest, we have um, one of my favorite investment managers, actually. It's David Shaw. He's a portfolio manager over at New River Investment. You've had him on your show a couple times. Uh, he's a prolific tweeter, actually. But he is also someone who makes money do things on a day-to-day -day basis. So unlike our conversations, we're not talking to a poker player, we're not talking to a gambler, <laughs> we're actually going to talk to someone who invests. A real-life credit portfolio <laughs> manager. That's who we're talking to. Awesome. Well, he's in studio right now. Hey, David. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Shall we start with, well, why don't we back up a bit? Why don't you tell us uh, what exactly you do and what kind of portfolios you manage? Sure. So I started at New River about two years ago, and right now I manage an opportunistic income strategy. And pretty much what that does is it focuses on fixed income or fixed income-like securities in the publicly traded space. So these are instruments such as mortgage REITs, REITs, closed-end funds that have underlying bonds in them, preferred stocks, business development companies. And it's kind of a niche area of the market where few players play. It's very illiquid. Um, and it's a little bit of the Wild West in the market, you know, versus before. I want to ask a question that backs up even farther than that, because the idea of having a job where you can take money and buy stuff and sell stuff seems pretty appealing. But how do you even get there? So how did you get to this role in life where you uh, work for New River Investments and you have this money to invest? What's the what's the path to get there? Sure. So that's a great question. So I started at a bank, DeNovo Bank, called Square One Financial in early 2008. And I started as a credit analyst. And Square One 
was a commercial bank, but they catered to the venture capital community. So a company would raise $10 million of a Series A, and they might raise a little bit of debt to bridge them to the next equity round. And we'd make the, the clients keep all their deposits at the bank, and pretty much I was underwriting these, these clients. So it might be a formula line of credit. And so it was early 2008, and the bank at the time had an outsourced investment manager who had loaded them up to the gills in subprime bonds. Mm. And the CEO came to me and he said, hey, David, I heard you worked on Wall Street. And so I had just moved back from New York. I was in equity research, so I wasn't in fixed income at all. And he said, hey, I heard you worked on Wall Street. We need your help. I said, sure, with what? And he said, we've got a whole portfolio of subprime bonds that are going bad, and we don't know what to do, so we need your help. I said, that sounds really interesting, but I don't know fixed income at all. <laughs> And just that, so, just a, that minor detail. Yeah, just that minor, minor detail. I said, you know, I've done the CFA program, and that's kind of all theory and no practice. And he's like, doesn't matter. We need you to come over here. So I went over there. It was, you know, early 2008, and we had probably a portfolio of 500 million of bonds that were going bad. And I remember looking at one of the mark-to-market reports, and I think it was a negative 135 million mark-to-market, and the bank only had equity of 120. So we were well and solvent on paper. And um, they fired the investment manager. The treasurer at the time that was running the portfolio quit. So I was left at the time in the middle of the crisis to run cash flows, read prospectuses, model cash flows, kind of figure out, you know, the mess that we were in. And so, you know, I had to meet with regulators and I'll never forget one of the regulators coming in from the FDIC or Federal Reserve. I don't remember which one it was. And they opened up a intro to mortgage-backed securities book. So at that moment, I realized that, <laughs> you know, even they didn't know what was going on. And so, I mean, it was fascinating. I remember, you know, just looking into these bonds and seeing some bonds that were bought where, you know, they decided to pick up an extra 30 basis points of spread by going from the senior A1 class to the mezzanine tranche. And I looked at, you know, these bonds were six months old. And already 25% of them had not even made one payment, not even one payment. So, you know, that's how I learned fixed income. I was kind of self-taught in a lot of ways. So the portfolio that I managed there was kind of a wide range. So of, you were thrown right in the deep end. was thrown right in the deep end. We ended up raising capital to recap ourselves. But the portfolio I ended up managing was kind of a mix of mortgage-backed securities, corporate bonds, preferred stocks, municipal bonds, asset-backed securities. So kind of the kitchen sink of fixed income, kind of with the only two constraints being, you know, we had to keep the duration around three-ish or lower, and we probably could only have about half the portfolio in credit. From there, it was kind of my job, and I, ha I had a lot of flexibility and freedom to kind of be creative and set the portfolio up however I wanted. So if I wanted, you know, 100% of the portfolio in three-year bonds, I could do that. If I wanted some in 30-year bonds and some at the front end of the curve, I could do that. And that's kind of the fun part is, you know, taking different types of securities with different characteristics of credit, duration, embedded leverage, and creating a portfolio that will perform in the types of scenarios that you're looking forward to. So, David, that kind of leads into the question I wanted to ask, which is, Yes, you got into fixed income in 2008, which was definitely a special time to be doing it. And to some extent, 
everyone was learning uh, new things, to put it mildly, um, during the financial crisis. But you came from an equity background. So what struck you as the biggest difference between equities and fixed income when it comes to investing or analyzing portfolios? Good question. Well, I think the macro, the macro component. So, you know, so much is driven by interest rates, obviously. So, you know, obviously, you know, key characteristic of fixed income is duration. So just how interest for rates- our, uh, For our listeners who don't know the definition of duration, what does that mean? So duration would be the first derivative. So it would be the change in price for a given move in interest rates. So if interest rates move X, the duration will tell you how much the underlying asset will move. Correct. So in theory, if somebody said duration was three and rates went up 100 basis points, you know, the price would decline 3%. Got it. And vice versa. All right. So I interrupted you and you were sort of talking about the difference between equity and uh, fixed income investing. So. Yeah. So obviously, I think the, the macro implications. So, you know, the implication of Federal Reserve policy, inflation, um, you know, other central banks throughout the world, and then just broadly credit cycles. I mean, credit cycles are a lot different than, you know, equities, obviously. So, you know, there's different types of supply, there's market technicals. Is the goal different? Because when I think of my biases, when I think of an equity manager, I think of someone who's really thinking about the upside and beating the indices. And when I think about a fixed income manager, I'm thinking of someone who's more about downside avoidance, as in you sort of know how much you could make, but you're trying to limit the potential losses. Is that a fair characterization of the risk profile or is that not thinking about it the right way? I think it is, because at the end of the day, um, you know, your upside is you get your principal back and you get paid interest too. So. You know, so you're right. The risk reward is very different in, you know, fixed income as it is in equities. So, you know, if you have a zero in fixed income, you know, you might not have the 2x like you'd have in equities to offset that. So, right. you know, your risk reward is a lot different. But what about your benchmarks? Or I, I guess what I'm asking is what sort of return profile are you aiming for? And you must be pegging yourself or benchmarking yourself to a particular thing or goal, Right. Correct. So, you know, when it was at the bank, it was more of an asset liability framework and more kind of in terms of the Barclays Ag. Um, we, now the Bloomberg Barclays. Now the B- Bloomberg Barclays Ag. Just so that we uh, stay on Well done, here. Joe. Joe's totally on message. <laughs> That's right. So I think, you know, for people that are not familiar, I would kind of call it the S&P 500 mm. of the bond world. Um, and that's pretty heavily weighted in treasuries and corporate bonds. So I would say in, in more agency mortgage-backed securities. So those are the main components of the Barclays Ag, kind of intermediate, intermediate benchmark. Um, you know, average life and duration. You know, in the five-ish range. Now I want to we want to talk about the market right now, but before we get there, let's take the next step. So you have this portfolio. How do you find what to invest in? What where do you start? Let's right. say someone. Let's just imagine a blank slate. Let's say you had a billion dollars to invest. It wasn't invested anywhere or whatever it is, or you have a portfolio that's totally messed up and you need to fix it. Where does the process begin to find investments that are A, good, or B, uh, sort of suit the needs of whoever's uh, money it is? Right. So I think the first question would be, is this an open-ended return where you're, you're shooting for absolute return or total return? Or is this in the asset liability framework? Uh Asset liability framework would be, you know, for instance, a bank or insurance company that has certain types of liabilities due in the future, 
and you're trying to match those. So, right. so from that point of view, your investment process is very different because you're trying to meet you know, certain liabilities in the future, whereas kind of an open-ended total return, you know, kind of more like I'm doing right now, um, you know, you're not trying to meet any liabilities in particular. So I think, um, you know, what I tell people is kind of there's four ways to make money in fixed income. There's kind of like four drivers. Mm. Um, you know, first is duration. So you can take, you know, more or less duration, you know, going longer on the curve. There's credit risk. So, you know, you can go down in credit. You can buy triple C bonds instead of double B or triple A. The next is liquidity. So you can kind of go down the liquidity spectrum. You know, some, you know, the PIMCOs of the world or double lines might need to buy, you know, much larger issues, whereas the smaller investment managers can buy these small issues or just kind of off the run things. And then the fourth is leverage. And, and that's either leverage that you could use, you know, through repo or embedded leverage through, you know, certain kinds of securities that have that leverage within it. So anytime you're shooting for more return or more yield in the market, really you're taking one or more of those four components. And I, th and I think the big thing when looking to form portfolios is you're looking to say at the current time, which of those four aspects is most attractive. Interesting. And, and there are certain times when it's, you know, duration. So after, um, you know, Trump was elected and rates kind of sold off, you know, a lot of things in duration, you know, really sold off hard and things tied to the long end, such as um, municipal bonds and preferred stocks, you know, you know, some, some things tied to those really got hit hard and there was opportunities. And, you know, there's other times when it's really credit. So say early in, you know, 2016, when we had the oil scare and the high yield blowout and, um, you know, spreads on much lower rated bonds were were far more attractive. So, David, I want to ask you about the current market, because amidst all the talk about, you know, lofty valuations and froth in the market, credit and, you know, cor things like corporate bonds, um, high yield bonds, those sold by junk rated companies, uh, subprime auto ABS, even some consumer loan ABS or securitizations, those have all been name checked as potentially risky forms of investment in the current environment, or at least overvalued in terms of what investors are getting back for putting their money in those. How do you make investment decisions when everyone is basically talking about things being overvalued in the market? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one thing is just to remind yourself that, you know, for how many years now have, have people been saying that? So, you know, you know, the mere fact that that's being commented on doesn't necessarily mean that's, you know, it may be true, but it may also continue. And that's not to say, you know, we're going to ignore risks in the market. But like you guys kind of alluded to in the introduction, if you're tasked with managing money, you can't really just sit it out and say, you know, maybe you can in your personal account, but if you're managing assets, you can't really say, I'm going to, I'm going to sit this whole thing out. So I, I think it's looking at the different risks. For instance, um, do you think that the risk return of, you know, corporate issuers is more favorable than, for instance, housing related debt, which I think, you know, the last crisis was housing related debt, but I think that the fundamentals for housing related debt at this time are actually pretty favorable. You know, consumer balance sheets are being repaired. Um, you know, there's really not non-agency being issued. You know, if there is, very, very little. Um, so, you know, in my mind, something like the underlying tailwinds and fundamentals of housing-related debt are a lot more attractive than, 
you know, corporates, for instance, you know, but you can't, you know, just stop there because, you know, the market may already be pricing in that. So um, I think a big thing that you look at in the bond market is, is loss adjusted yield. So you're not just looking at the yields and spreads you're getting, but you're having to loss adjust that. So you're, you're looking at different scenarios and saying, well, if, if the credit cycle is benign and defaults here run at X, you know, what, what does my return look like? But, you know, if it's very unfavorable, then what will it look like? Because I think, you know, you have to have humility in this job and say, what I think is going to happen is probably not going to happen. So we're going to look at various scenarios and we're going to say in um, rates up, X happens in base scenario you know, Y happens and rates down, Z happens. Or in, you know, benign credit cycle this, you know, great credit cycle that, or terrible credit cycle, you know, something else. So you're looking at different scenario analysis and, you know, sometimes not all bonds are going to win for you at the same time. So for instance, at the bank, you know, one of the things I did was I was very long in zero coupon California school district munis. And it sounds crazy. And in isolation, people might not have bought them because they were 30-year zero-coupon bonds. But they had very, very wide spreads and very good risk rewards. And when you mix that with things that were very short at the time, it created a very favorable overall dynamic. So I think one of the things is you can have a bond in isolation that might look ugly mm. or might look unfavorable, <clears throat> but when you add it into a portfolio, you know you can create superior overall profiles. And I think that that's the fun of it. You're mixing different ingredients in and trying to create a profile that will match what your overall assessment of the market is. Well, David Shaw, I think that was a I love that last answer. I love that it ended on a 30 year California school district zero coupon <laughs> bonds, because uh, probably an area of the market that not many people have um, perhaps ever thought about in their entire life. But I think that was a uh, great talking to you. That was like sort of a great explanation of what you do. And then also, I loved, real quickly, name those four things again, the four vectors through which you, there are opportunities in fixed income. Correct. So that's duration. Right. Sensitivity to rates. Credit risk, liquidity risk, mm -hmm. and leverage. Great stuff. David Shaw, Portfolio Manager at New River Investments. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. So, Joe, are you, uh, are, you, are you thinking of changing jobs? I am going to uh, switch jobs and put all of my money in, uh, I think, 30-year California zero. No, I think that was, like, that was the old <laughs> trade. I, I, I imagine that opportunity is not there anymore, especially uh, by the time people hear this podcast. I have to admit, it does sound really fun. He said it was, he said to use the word fun at the end. The idea of actually having money on the line, not just talking – there's this gigantic <laughs> world of fixed income trying to find the diamond in the rough. You got to admit, it sounds like it'd be a pretty cool job. It sounds pretty frustrating to me, actually, just because oh, really? there are so <laughs> many, there are so many factors to consider. And I guess I'm a risk averse um, kind of person. So I would sit down and I would look at a particular bond and I would just basically list off all the things that could yeah. go wrong. And I'd probably never invest in anything and I'd be beaten right. by all my peers and I would be very, very bad at this. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I think the journalist mindset is to uh, focus on the downside. Probably a good reason why we're in our current jobs and not David's job. 
Yeah, you're right. All right, well, I feel better. So should we leave it there? I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow David Shaw on Twitter at David Shaw. And our producer, Sarah Patterson, Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. 